Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from TV2 Director of International Acquisitions, Nina Logan Flamen about the changing value of UK and US programming to the Norwegian broadcaster as it increasingly focuses on streaming. And David Schalko and John Lufner, showrunner and exec producer of Me and the Others, Sky's first original drama to return to production amid COVID-19. Shows from the UK and US still have a place at Norwegian commercial broadcaster TV2, despite the increasing demand for local programming and a growing focus on on-demand. That's the view of Director of International Acquisitions Nina Logan Flamen, who spoke to Karolina Kaminska about the success the network has seen with its series, including a local remake of Love Island and dramas that play out on SVOD service TV2 Sumo. The exec also discussed how the company has navigated the pandemic and the kind of content she's looking out for right now. Um, Nina, what sort of demand is there currently for UK content in Norway, both for finished programmes and formats for adaptation? And how has it or is it changing? Well, UK content has always been very popular in Norway. I think, you know, it's uh, sort of a, yeah, uh, started with NRK, the public broadcaster was always very good. So when TV2 entered the market in the early 90s, I think they started with becoming more Americanized. So they they went the other way because they wanted to be the commercial counterpart to the public broadcaster. But um, that's uh, history now. And of course, we are, in addition to uh, running TV2, the main channel, we have a, you know, SWOD service. But I would say that for the UK content, there's still room in our normal schedule for linear TV, which is much harder for US content these days. So it still has some pull uh, versus viewers, but it's really hard to get anything scripted through to linear slots these days. It's becoming more and more locally produced shows and formats. And uh, the UK sort of event limited series usually end up in shoulder season or in holiday season. So uh, we have a big sort of Easter crime, often two series that will get primetime slots. And then during Christmas and maybe some during May, June, when all the local Productions are ending with their seasons. So there's still some linear interest, but I would say that when it comes to the UK, I think the, the limited series is kind of what is making its mark because you don't, sometimes you don't want to go into those long running network shows. You as a consumer find it sort of appealing that it's only four episodes, it's only six episodes. So I think that's a really positive thing about, you know, the high production volume of limited series and then of course it gives the viewer much more choice as everything becomes more and more you know centered around what you your personal preferences for shows can you talk about some uk shows or formats from the uk that you have had success with in the recent past i think the format that has recently been on our channel is uh, love island so what we did is we did a locally produced version of it and because of the pandemic we weren't able to do a second season but we also then build the universe around it with the uk version and the Australian version and the US version. So all in all, it was a big sort of pull in launching a new format. 
And that was very successful for the younger demos. And I think it was really important for our profile to step outside the very safe bubble of the other shows that we've, you know, had in, in the reality sort of genre. So that's been really important. That's the one I think I would bring to the table. And you spoke before about US content and the sort of difference in demand for content from the US versus UK. Drama from the US is becoming increasingly unavailable especially with major US studios now holding back content for their own streaming platforms. Do you think that UK drama is becoming a replacement for US drama? I definitely think so. And I think what's been happening, I would say the last maybe two years, has been really interesting with the UK drama. Originally, or maybe it's my own opinion, but it's been very conservative and very sort of traditional crime drama. I think what we've seen the latest couple of years is that it's been much more diverse in, you know, thrillers and political dramas and uh, relationship dramas. And that's really, really wonderful to see because it's, even though it's great to still have those traditional crime drama, it's wonderful to see that the British producers are now sort of, you know, a reaching out and also the young adult shows that has been coming out from UK. So I think there's been actually quite a revolution going from a couple of years ago and much more uh, diversity in both genres, but also uh, storytelling. So yeah, I would say the US is still kind of on a more of a production machine, uh, even though you see some wonderful content coming from the US, I would say the UK producers are maybe a little bit more realistic in their storytelling. And um, UK broadcasters ITV and the BBC are planning a global rollout of their joint venture SVOD service BritBox. How do you think this will impact both demand for UK content and the availability of UK programmes for international broadcasters? Yeah, that's going to be very interesting. I think, of course, there's a huge demand now for content. And uh, I think our you know main issue now is to um, have enough time to consume all these great shows and market them so that the, the subscriber actually uses our service. We have a over a 50% usage rate on our service, TV2Sumo, uh, which is very high compared to a lot of these services. So there, half of our subscribers are in every day and consuming about three assets. So yeah, I think it's going to be hard to come in with another service. I think I think partnerships is probably a very good idea. And also it's a lot of the third party producers, you know, have rights as well. So it's hard to collect everything because it is a very difficult whoever retains the rights. So that's going to be interesting to see. We also seen that Paramount Plus and other services are also acquiring UK content. So all in all, it's a huge fight to get content. And I would say that, you know, a lot of it is pre-buy. You know, there's a lot of scripts that we've been reading. And that's also one way of retaining rights or getting rights to our service. And also we have partnerships with Seymour. So we have sort of several ways to, you know, secure content. But it's always hard to say what is going to be a success or not. I think BritBox as an idea is is wonderful. I think there is a demand for sort of a one-stop shop for British content. But I do believe that there's going to be a cap to how many services people can have. And then 
then you also have the telecom operators in Norway. So it's it's a it's, I think there's going to be a big shift in how that is going to be operated. So we're probably going to see some more consolidations. Yeah, so that's going to be interesting. I've uh, I know they've launched in Australia and other markets. So we're following close the BritBox roadmap. But hopefully there's going to be partnerships models. And speaking of partnerships, what is your stance on co-producing with companies in the UK? Well, I think co-financing is probably the better way to go. I think when you co-produce, there's always going to be the dilemma who, who actually uh, runs the show. So I, I always think it's better to leave the creative producer to making the show that they wanted to make. And that if we're part of it, it's more of a co-financing or a pre-financing partner. That being said, I am sure that our drama department uh, would welcome co-productions on a more local scale. So that's that's a little bit of a different sort of ballgame. So what sort of programs are you looking for? Well, we have all genres on our TV2Sumo platform. So we are quite open. But of course, we, we have target groups that we need to, you know, find new shows for. And it could be uh, co-viewing, it could be young adult, it could be female. Email, the mail skewing. So running a subscription, you always need to find shows that are going to retain subscribers, but also, you know, a reason to buy a subscription. So I think we're all always looking for shows that will, you know, attract new subscribers. And then there's going to be shows that we're going to keep the subscribers that we already have happy. So it's trying to match all of those uh, needs and target groups and getting new subscribers, I guess. Like that. Are there any genres or program specific I guess in terms of you know series length or episode length or anything like that that um, you find are particularly popular among your viewers? Well, I think from the UK market, the shorter limited series are always good because you then have something new to market your SVOD service with. And it also fits in with, you know, linear demands. So those short limited series is very good. And at the same time, if they are a success, some are good if they come back for new seasons. If it's a new storyline. So yeah, I think that would be good. And in terms of the US studios, you know, we're going to be looking for uh, some of the mainstream shows that still do really well for us. There's a big demand for that as well. So we'll be looking for that and for young adult. Is there anything in particular that you're not looking for, something that you don't think works at all for TV2? You know what? We used to have those sort of boundaries before, but I think that's going to be a little bit close-minded. I think you need to be really open for all creative paths that uh, is out there. So I think we're going to have an open mind. And um, I think what we learned throughout the you know couple of last years is that what might have been very niche before is now becoming broader. So we're not going to, we're not going to put our sunglasses on. We're going to keep a wide... <laughs> open mind. And how is the coronavirus pandemic affecting things at the channel at the moment? We're about a year in now to the COVID-19 crisis. So what, what's the latest situation at TV2? Um, actually, we are doing really well. You know, as I said, our services, you know, it's never been as many subscribers. And um, 
it's like I said, a 53% usage, daily usage. So we're really happy with the way it's going. In terms of having enough shows, I think we have a very open sort of one-stop shop uh, where we have a lot of local productions, we have news, we have sports, and then we have acquisitions. So we have a lot of programming coming through. And in terms of acquisition, we've had, uh, luckily we've had actually a lot of Danish shows that work really well for us. Uh, we also have, you know, Swedish drama. Uh, we have our a relationship with Seymour and we've actually bought quite a few shows and also some reality shows. So all in all, we've been pretty good. I mean, we haven't really felt that there's been a huge loss in, in shows. We've sort of managed to, you know, every month have something new to talk about. So yeah, I think we've just been fortunate. I think for a while there, we were quite worried, but it's uh, worked out. Are there any productions at all that you're due to be airing that are delayed at the moment? There's been delays in the US, but right now they're coming back on track. So there's been some hiatuses and so forth that we usually don't have. And of course, that's unfortunate, but also very understandable. And I think, you know, everybody or all our subscribers uh, understand now. And we usually have um, the day after US, for instance, and they they are so, um, you know, into knowing when their shows are back on. So we haven't really had a problem sort of explaining it. I think everybody has an open mind to that. It's difficult now. And there has been some library, good second run or library shows that also can sort of make up for the loss of new. But I think all in all, we've we've done pretty well, but we don't want it to continue. <laughs> That's for sure. Just in general with with sporting events, obviously there are some coming up that we hope are going to be running this year, but we don't really know for certain no. if they will be able I know. to. In, in those circumstances, if you have an event that does get cancelled and you there, therefore can't cover it, what would you do then to fill that gap in your schedule? Well, I mean, we, you know, like Tour de France uh, was cancelled last year. And of course, that usually runs during daytime here. So, of course, it's a loss in market share, but we are able to, uh, you know, of course, continue with normal, you know, programming. And we don't have the Olympics, the European Championships. It's probably going to be reruns of local productions or it will be, uh, yeah, limited shows that we will buy for the slots. I think that it's not an issue it's more that you're not gonna you know you're not gonna get the results so it's just a matter of um yeah so so filling isn't going to be a problem the problem is of course not having those big events is is the market share and the commercial sales attached to it are there any types of shows or genres that are particularly in demand among your viewers at the moment i would say relationship drama does really well you know real emotional and authenticity i mean you know that you feel that you're also fascinated with, but you feel you could relate to. I think young adult, you know, shows are high in demand. And again, uh, usually about relationships or relevant topics. And then you're all, always going to have, I think, co-viewing shows that you can watch with your partner. So it's a little bit varied, I would say. And of course, the thrillers are always, crime and thrillers are always popular. We'll never go out of style. <laughs> 
And what do you see as being the biggest challenges and opportunities over the next year? Oh, I think we're, you know, getting access to rights, you know, uh, alliances, building alliances, building maybe even alliances beyond the Nordic borders. Yeah, I think, uh, again, it's going to be interesting to see what the global streaming services will retain of their own rights and how much content sales will come through their pipeline. So, yeah, that's the big question. You know, they've been saying this for years, but still we we managed to get quite big shows so so far so good but it's really hard to uh you know look into the glass crystal ball sorry but hopefully new producers young producers will come and uh, sort of disrupt the market nina logan flamen from tv2 speaking with carolina kaminska Sky's German-language original Me and the Others premiered at the virtual version of Berlinale series earlier this month. The show was the first Sky original drama to return to production in the wake of COVID-19 and completed filming during the pandemic, having only gotten underway five days before the virus hit. Writer, director and showrunner David Schalko, plus exec producer John Lufner from Maker Superfilm, spoke to Michael Pickard about the surreal existential story and its journey to screen. As we record, it's uh, a few days before Berlin Ali and, and me and the others is among the uh, the six series, you know, having their premiere this year at the event. Um, I mean, how's, how's the show going? I think um, when I spoke to you a couple of weeks ago, you said, uh, you know, you're obviously still finishing uh, the episodes. How's it all going? Uh, it's finished since yesterday, actually, so it's uh, uh, quite fresh. <laughs> And um, they show all six episodes of the first season, which makes me very happy because it's uh, a series that uh, needs its time to you see the whole series. It makes a lot of difference in that case uh, because it's not a classic uh, bold uh, uh, storyline or plot. Uh, uh, it's very associative telling. And so this is why. And um, yeah, and it's a pity we are not all in Berlin. I think uh, that we all feel the same about it. So. Absolutely. And, and so David, just a I mean, give us a, a brief outline of, of the series and, and some of the characters and, and what the story is about. Um, actually, it's about a guy. Uh, there's one uh, uh, main character you've seen every scene of the uh, series. There's nearly no scene without him because everything is told out of his perspective. So, and that is why it's called Me and the Others. And um, the idea is that the, he is in kind uh, of a simulation and uh, um, in in, in every simulation, uh, it's another premises. Uh, in one episode, uh, uh, everybody knows everything about him. In one episode, uh, everybody's telling each other the truth. Uh, and so uh, it's always about the relationship of the me to the others, actually. And he uh, can wish how to change the game. And But his wishes uh, turn out always to be different uh, than how he imagined it was. And um, this is what it's about. At the end. I think Sky, actually, just a few hours ago, released the first trailer. So I've been able to uh, watch it a few times and it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's very interesting about this guy. He obviously has some sort of wishing powers. Is that correct? And and he can change yeah. things. And I think, you know, one wish is that he wants everyone to love him. Um, and that makes for some interesting scenes. And then um, in another scene, he asks for, you know, for people to tell the truth and it kind of leads to riots. So uh, <laughs> it's quite interesting to see how that goes. Um, I mean, what was it? What's the kind of the, I guess, the theme behind the series or um, what is it that you kind of wanted to to explore when you first had the idea for the for show? I wanted to do a series that's not plotted in a normal way or uh, I wanted to do a series that's mainly uh, about the existential 
thing of human condition, actually, and about identity and about uh, uh, our relation to the others. And I didn't want to tell a classic story, actually. It's a more uh, an essay uh, issue, you can say, but it's told in a fictional way. It's a comedy. And um, that was the idea because um, I had the feeling that uh, we see so many series uh, every week coming out uh, and uh, they're very similar on the way that you have always this cliffhanger system or whatever. So I was thinking about something that uh, makes a little difference maybe and uh, add something that's not existing yet. I mean, would you would you compare it to anything you've you've done before? I guess more recently, M, um, A City Hunter Murderer, had a very distinct style to it and, um, you know, the way you told that story. Does this compare in any way or do you kind of do your projects each stand out on their own? It's very, it's also a very visual project, I can say that you can compare with that. It's also the same cameraman working on the project now. I mean, it's a very different genre because uh, M told uh, kind of a depression in a society. And this is uh, more, uh, um, I would say it's more comedian, but it's also very surreal. And it's very, uh, you always have the feeling that it takes place in the head of the uh, hero and not in a naturalistic uh, setup. And um, of course, there's a style probably in dialogue and visual you can compare to, but it's a whole different story, of course. So. And John, you've, um, you see, you and David have, have built up a, a good partnership over the last few years and, and obviously working together at Superfilm. I mean, what's that process like between you where David comes to you with a new idea and says, what do you think of this? And, uh, you know, what did you think of this show when he first pitched it to you? It's another joint together with David, as always. Um, all the projects we did together now for the last 16 years, it's something very special with them. And um, we were talking about this idea for a long time. This was something that was thinking about for some time. And I was very happy to find a partner with Sky to uh, try this simulation and to get it done to the ground. Can you tell us a bit about how the show was developed and, and then maybe how you took it to sky or what were those steps that you uh, you took to get the show off the ground well we were in talks with sky for some time uh, and we're trying to find something that could fit and that could uh, make a cooperation happen and actually this one then it was just a one pager that um, <laughs> it was really one pager and we just tried it out and we found out that they were interested immediately and so yeah we just met and uh, David told him uh, how he'd like to go to the story and um, so they commissioned it and so he wrote the script and <laughs> so it was fairly fairly easy as they said they wanted to do the shows that nobody else wanted to do and this is really something um, uh, that fit perfectly into this, this briefing I'd say what was it about um, Sky for you David that um, were they a very collaborative partner with you because I guess as the writer director showrunner it's very much your show so um, did they give you the I guess the freedom to, to do what you wanted with the, sh with the story uh, they were very positive about the project from the beginning and uh, always had freedom uh, which is not uh, uh, I mean it's a very complicated project and uh, on the first sight it's not a very commercial project but um, and it's a very innovative project so you have uh, to find someone who really goes there with you uh, and to discuss you not in a classic uh, way uh, which was the case and uh, it was always encouraging and uh, that's what I really liked about it, it was never mm, ah, now we are going too far it was always about uh, is it right for the story or is it not is it good within the system uh, how it it uh, and this is what we discussed at the end of the day so i hope really uh that, uh, that the people watch it because uh, um, it's very rare for a channel that they act like that I think. and just in terms of your own process you know are you a writer first and then a director or are you kind of wearing all these different hats 
at once as you kind of flesh out the story and, and thinking about how you might film scenes as you write them? I mean, the beginning is always the writing. And uh, um, for me, this is, of course, the most interesting part because I wouldn't say it comes out of nothing, but, but you have to fish for the moments and then something happens and uh, and, and something uh, gets haptic or something like that. And so uh, uh, And then everything else adds in a way, but it's always about the first fish you catch. And so um, I think that's the interesting thing for me. Uh, but then it's also very interesting that all the people are coming together and everybody has ideas to it. And um, and so it's a big ship uh, that's uh, leaving the harbour. And uh, that's what I like about it too. And and you mentioned, um, you know, the lead character. He's in almost every scene. And, um, you know, that's obviously Tom Schilling plays the character. Can you tell us a bit about casting Tom and, and what was it like working with him when, like you say, he's in almost every scene? So I was, look, I was thinking about him uh, very often during writing I always had him in mind actually uh, he takes it very serious and uh, um, um, that's what I like about and we talked a lot, a lot about the script and uh, every sentence we rethought actually and uh, because you need an actor like that and you need also an actor you really want to look uh, at uh, for in every scene I mean that's not getting on your nerves actually or he has is deep enough uh, so that you uh, really want to see it and he also represents something uh, in his generation which correlates with the uh, series and uh, what in which world it takes place and uh, uh, so those are the factors and, and it was completely different working of course because you spend every day together you know obviously the last year um you know the tv industry has been kind of shaken up a bit with the with the pandemic and and your show unfortunately didn't escape that i gather you were shooting for five days is that right in march before you had to shut down and and then you were able to to start again in june so what was that like for you having to stop and and how did you prepare then to to restart i guess maybe that's one for john uh, you know behind the scenes talking from production wise this was obviously a complete disaster it was the, the um, hardest thinkable full stop ever and it was really not easy it was not easy to um because Obviously, everybody also was frightened. Nobody knew how to how to cope with the whole situation. Obviously, it was the first lockdown for everybody, not just for us, for all the, for the actors, for the team. I, I have to say we were really lucky. First of all, uh, David is uh, someone who's really, uh, he stays calm in almost every situation. <laughs> this was really helpful um, as a partner in the company, but as well as uh, the director of the show, obviously. And what we did, we started immediately um, after like cleaning up up uh, the first wave of um, of the disaster um, um, we had obviously the problem is that insurance wouldn't uh, wouldn't cover production disruptions that was actually the point so we worked on a solution together with the Austrian government with uh, several ministries in the Austrian government from the financial ministry the economics uh, the cultural department together with the economic chamber here in Austria to find a solution that um, government takes over coverage of such uh, production disruptions and uh, this worked out very quickly and it was really a very cool process for us because um, um, it enabled us to to hold all the team together and to get restarted within like uh, three months and right now it also it seems that as if this were ages ago already so it's really that we're in the fourth lockdown right now it's unimaginable so um, yeah 
yeah, we were really lucky. Yeah. yeah. What, what was it like on set for you? Um, you know, in terms of did you have to put different zones in place for actors to only go in and other people to go in, or how did you manage? You know, the the set to keep everyone safe. Yeah, we we had to had to develop a, um, a hygienical concept, obviously, um, and it was a three zone concept, and uh, basically was a closed circuit, uh, closed set concept. So we had uh, everybody who was working in the closed set didn't have to wear any masks or whatever. We tested every day almost, um, especially at the beginning. And then we went to PCR tests uh, twice a week. And um, so we really had no disruptions uh, in the creative process, I think. Everybody in the bubble could work in the bubble without any um, disruptions. And uh, it did work out quite well. And we didn't have not a single positive uh, test in the whole period. We did on this show, we had from the uh, beginning of uh, June till the end of shooting at the end of August, about 4,000 PCR tests in pools um, with not a single positive uh, team member. Even the extras, we had a lot of extras, of course. I mean, there were scenes uh, with 400 extras or something like that. And uh, they were really enjoying it because uh, at this time it was uh, under different circumstances. It would have been illegal uh, to be in a club, for example, in a club scene with 400 people dancing. So they were really having party because <laughs> it was an unused situation, actually. And uh, from the creative perspective, it was not really a restriction, I have to say. I was really surprised how it went it well uh, with all this testing and uh, those zones um, and everybody got used to it very quickly. Actually. And I guess it was it because everyone was being tested so often that you were able to have those you know, nightclub scenes and things, you didn't ever think about having to change it to a, a smaller setting, perhaps? No, we put those things at the end of the shooting because we didn't know when it would be possible to do it because at the beginning, nobody had the experience how to do that. So we had a lot of extra scenes in, in the last week of shooting. So it was really like one day, 400 people in the club, then 300 people in the park. And then it was and, and just, I mean, um, you know, when people get to see the show, what would you uh, just tell them to expect? What, what what can they look forward to seeing? And um, it doesn't sound like, uh, you know, like you say, it doesn't sound like anything that uh, we might have seen before, perhaps, or, or something certainly very unique. I can only recommend to watch it <laughs> to the end because it will not be what you think it would be. <laughs> And is, is this something, um, I don't know, are, are Sky going to kind of release it as a box set to, for people to binge? Or is this the sort of show that you would want people to watch one at a time and, and kind of let it um, sort of settle in their minds before they then get to watch the, the next episode? I think everybody's different. Um, I just showed it to a couple of people. They binged it because they had the feeling it's like, uh, I don't know, like you're getting high. I mean, yeah. Um, but probably there are also people who really prefer to watch it episode after episode and day after day. I mean, everybody's different there. And is this um, is this a, a single series? Are you planning, is this a, a you know a returning series or are you looking at working on a, your next project already? Yeah, my plan, so, I mean, the plan would be that there are two seasons because now it's the half of the rotation is uh, and uh, I, I would like to uh, do another six or eight episodes to finish it because it's all in the mind and uh, parts of it are already written. But we have to see i mean it all always depends if it's uh, successful or not or uh, how the channel thinks in half a year you all we all know that so i don't know yeah. david shalko and john lufner speaking with michael pickard that's all for this episode but there'll be more from the podcast tomorrow in the meantime stay safe and up to date with all the latest international tv industry news and views by following c21 online on mobile and social media
My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.